I'm Sharon Betters, and the host of this episode of our Help and Hope podcast produced by Mark Inc. Ministries. You can hear more stories like this one when you visit markinc.org. Today, I'm so eager to introduce you to Corey Salkard. Corey is the author of I Will Love You Forever, a true story about finding life, hope, and healing while caring for hospice babies. She's also the mother of over 15 children, and some of them have died in her care, and we're going to hear about that. Corey traveled a really painful pathway before she arrived at her calling to caring for and loving terminally ill children so that they would not die alone. I know that Corey's story is going to inspire, encourage, and challenge you as it has encouraged and challenged and inspired me to carefully consider how we are investing our own lives into offering help and hope to others. So, Corey, welcome. Thank you, Sharon. Corey, as we uh, get into your story, why don't you tell us about yourself and your current season of life? I am Corey Solkert and currently married for almost 31 years. Uh, We still have three biological children at home. One who is adopted, Charlie, who is four and a half. He will be five in June. Our last placement that we had our foster child for almost two years was adopted last September and died in the middle of October. Mm-hmm. He was came to us terminally ill and lived much longer than the doctors had anticipated. And uh, right now we're just kind of in a season of rebuilding and restoring. There were things that just had to be let go during the time when we had Samuel. And so we're catching up on that as well as some education requirements. And then we anticipate going back into another foster adoption, possible adoption situation in April. You have such a unique calling, which our listeners are going to understand as you share more of your story. But give us a little picture of how this happened. What led up to you opening up your home for terminally ill children Was it just like one day you said, okay, I'm going to do this? Or was there a journey, a pathway before that? It has been a lifetime of preparation to be able to do this. I'm 53 years old. My husband is 63. And both of us had had a passion for the unborn for as long as we can remember. I went through college and wanted to do something more with that, went into hospice in my nursing career, and then the last eight, 10 years of my nursing career, I worked with families whose babies were had either died or were going to die and developed a program called Hope After Loss Organization, or HALO, of bereavement support. Because in my estimation, a family member had died and they needed hospice support just as much as someone who might be 85 years old. And so I came alongside those families when their babies died through miscarriage or stillbirth or early newborn death and was there to walk that journey with them before and after the loss of their child. And I had come face to face with women who were given a diagnosis at 18 weeks or thereabouts that the baby might have a lethal anomaly or a life-limiting prognosis outside of the womb. Not all of them were willing or able to to 
stay with a baby couldn't bear to watch them die. And my thought was, is if you could just get through the pregnancy that we would love to, as a family, care for that child until they died. Because for us, the worst case scenario was that they wouldn't have a life, not that they were going to die. Corey, you start your book with this powerful story of your sister, Amy. And I know that her life has impacted you in a profound way. Tell us a little bit about how she really is part of how you got to this point. My sister was diagnosed with spinal meningitis when she was four months old and had gone into the hospital a normal baby and came out profoundly brain damaged because of the high fevers. She lived with our family until she was about five years old. And at that point in time, it was advised by the doctors and the American Fork Institute for the Profoundly Mentally Retarded that Amy go and live at the institute that that our family should no longer uh, take care of her. And Amy spent a number of years at the institution. And then when she was 11 years old, managed to go out a side door and wander off the property and she drowned. Mm. And I will tell you that I was more than devastated by that because I had wanted to have a relationship with my sister. She was oblivious, so she didn't really know that I was missing, but I was missing her. And then she died. And there was an area of woundedness for years that I felt as though God had not been faithful because he could have had somebody see her. Someone could have noticed that she was drowning and intervened and did not. And she drowned and was alone. And I carried that in my heart, just this guarded area of, I was trying to do everything right and obey all the rules and be what God wanted me to be and do what I was supposed to do. But there still was this guarded area that somehow he'd kind of messed up there Mm -hmm. and just a a woundedness. And I was probably 35 years old, 38 years old. And I just said, I'm, I'm tired of this. I, I want this wound healed, heal the wound, reveal the scar. And so this, my book kind of came out of the redemption of that loss. And Amy's not coming back. She drowned and it's been, it's been almost 40 years. But in asking God to redeem that loss and to help me see where he was there, even though it was a perspective that I didn't have, he has been very faithful to answer that request and has brought us into contact with my my not wanting any child that's within my scope of practice or my ability to reach to die alone. That, that 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 doesn't have to be necessary and that a mother doesn't have to feel as though there's no hope. So leave the baby in a dumpster. We'll take them. We don't care how sick they are. We don't care how fragile they are, that we would consider it a privilege to walk them home. So God has worked out all things together for good, not that all things are good. My sister drowning was tragic and terrible. But God has worked such good through that loss and through healing my heart that I have compassion and empathy and passion for children who might be profoundly brain damaged 
and need someone to stay close. You mentioned that you went through some difficult times with your health. How long was that period of time? Oh, I've struggled with my health since I was a little kid. Um, and then you hear, oh, you're not that sick or it's not that big a deal. <laughs> when I was growing up, you know, you could get Wonder Bread and you could get three loaves for a dollar. And we lived on an awful lot of that. And I was sick all the time. And I had no idea that I had celiac disease and that, you know, bread was not my friend. And it didn't matter whether it was whole wheat or whether it was Wonder. It was not good for me, but because my diet had all of that gluten in it and dairy, which I am... I cannot handle. It's not a matter of that I just don't like it because I really do. I'm very much looking forward to heaven and having Cinnabons and pizza. But this side of heaven, it is not my friend. And I became deathly ill with with all of that and had been sick for years. And then people with doctors would say, well, I'm really not finding anything because they weren't looking <laughs> for that particular thing. So I have certainly sat in a number of doctor's offices where they've said, we're not finding anything that's wrong. You know, maybe you need some Wellbutrin, maybe you need some Zoloft, maybe you need some Prozac because you're obviously, you know, depressed. And then hearing over and over that because they don't know what's wrong with you, then it must be something that was mental. And there's absolutely a mental component. I mean, I have Hashimoto's thyroiditis. And there's if your thyroid is not working correctly, there are times when you can just be despairing of life itself. So it absolutely impacts you mentally. It doesn't mean that it's a... I sit in a psychiatrist chair kind of diagnosis. But yes, over and over and over again, heard... I don't know what's wrong with you. Please don't come back. It's been wonderful to find a physician who says that he finds my case fascinating mm. as opposed to just frustrating. In your book, you describe a lot of details about the struggles that you went through with your health and how doctor after doctor, just as you described, kind of sent you away as it maybe it's all in your head kind of thing, mm -hmm. but how painful that was for you. You were in real physical pain. You described some of the ways that that pain showed up and affected you and years and years of this kind of pain. But then later you have said that God was using that period in your life to prepare you for where you are right now. How, how could he use such a dark place? I'm just going to hit on one aspect of that. I was absolutely pro-life when it came to a baby and believed that they should not be aborted, that they should not be killed because they were not wanted, because they were not loved, because they were inconvenient, or because they were sick or had a terminal diagnosis. And that was all well and good for a baby. And then when it came to my own health, I was so wrapped up in, I needed to be contributing I needed to be productive. And God graciously took me through a period of time where I was completely bedridden. I could get up and go to the bathroom and then go back to bed. At one point, I completely shaved off all of my hair because I did not have the strength to stand in the shower to be able to wash it. And it was also a humbling of myself before God because I had prayed, if I'm not really going to be living, then I don't want to be here. And I don't understand why I can't just die. Mm. And the shaving of my head was 
I've always been told, at least in some of the religious you know, background, whatever, that a, a woman's hair is her glory and that that's a gift that she has from God. And, and um, I do have, I do have beautiful hair and that's, that is not something that I say with pride. It is something that I've been given, but I got rid of any kind of vanity like that and just said, God, I do not understand what you are doing. And if you are not hearing my prayers for some reason and relieving this suffering, which I know that you have the power to do, and I don't understand what more I can do to have you hear me. And by hearing me, it was either heal me or kill me. I, I don't want to be living like this because in my estimation, I wasn't really living, being an emotional huge financial, spiritual, physical drain on everyone around me having to care for me. And I really believe that God during that time period said, Corey, I don't love you and I'm not happier with you when you're busy. That your value for me is not based on at the end of your day being able to tick off a list of all of the things that you accomplished. So therefore, it's been a good day, and therefore, you are valuable. I had to get to the point where it was the footprints poem, and I mentioned that in the book. Looking at that footprint poem that said, it was then that I carried you, and I said, I don't want to be carried anymore. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be carried anymore. I want to get down and walk. I'm not even asking to run, but I want to be able to get down and walk. I don't want to have to be carried. And getting to the place where it was a contentment with, If I have to be carried, then I want to be able to do that and have some peace in my heart over physically not being able to walk myself. Mm -hmm. And until I could get it through my thick head that he did not value me more because I was able to do stuff for him, I always attributed that to the baby. didn't mean that they were valuable because they were productive. And then when I got put in a place where I was anything but productive, in fact, was quite the drain, God said, It doesn't just work for babies. It works for you too. And I have been restored in a great measure of my health, but he had to shake the, shake the snot out of that idea that as you got older, you definitely should be proving your worth by what you can do. Mm -hmm. And he just said, that's just too shaky. If you're not able to get up and go, does that mean that you're worthless and that you should be put away? I think, I mean, that is such a profound um, teaching moment, especially as you have applied it to where he's called you to care for these children who the world might look at and say, well, they're really worthless because they're not contributing. And what you're saying is that's not what gives us our worth in God's eyes. That God's love is is not rooted in what we do or what we're able to give and contribute to others. It's because he loves us, period. We have value because we're made in the image of God. And that's where our value stems from. And if you can get up and go and you can do, then you should. I don't believe that we should be lazy and sit back and let others take care of us if we're actually able to take care of ourselves and contribute, but that our value stems from being made in the image of God. And so when people say, oh, this is just such a waste, Mm -hmm. when they look at Charlie or when they looked at our teenager that we had for a couple of years, that it was a waste because they were still here and they were never going to get out of bed on their own accord, that they don't go anywhere unless we take them. 
and that it was a waste of my time to day in and day out, take care of a child who would never in turn contribute, quote unquote, tangibly to my life. And so I get to come back with, I don't care for them in order for them to give back to me. This is an opportunity actually, in some respects, to love unconditionally. And they're not valuable because of their ability to contribute. And I don't consider it a waste of my time. And I'm the one who is is caring for them. And then I also take them to task and say, and so would you say that I should neglect them and let them lay in their filth or not feed them so that they can stop being a waste and die? Because I'm not going to in any way neglect them. I personally am responsible to do what I can for these children. And God knows the number of their days. That's not my place to step in and say, you're done. I'm not going to take care of you anymore. But to leave that with God and then to step in and care for these children for the time that they are living and to, in whatever way humanly possible, contribute to a quality of life that is not any more painful or any more grievous than it has to be. And I cannot tell you that I can relieve all of the pain. When Samuel died last October, it was a terribly difficult time. He had pulmonary edema, and it was a very rough day in spite of the medications that I had to be able to mitigate his suffering. And I will tell you that in the process of him dying, I found myself so angry at death and that that this was horrible and please take him already. I don't understand why this is so difficult. And I pulled up a message by Timothy Keller out of New York City. And he was talking about Christ's death and that the magnitude of the suffering that he endured was a reflection of the sinfulness that he had to atone for. And it actually, believe it or not, I listened to that sermon in the last 45 minutes of Samuel's death in order to retain some sanity and not run because it was, it was out of my hands what he was going through. And I could not take it myself. And I thought, all right, Mary stayed and watched as Jesus died, could not do anything. And he had pulmonary edema. He had all of those things. And my child wasn't being crucified, but he was dying. Mm. And that Jesus is no longer dying. He's no longer suffering. And as soon as Samuel drew his last breath, he had no memory mm. of what he just endured. And I do. But that is a place that I can attest that God knows my grief mm. and that he's been touched by it and that I'm not alone and that I won't ever go through anything that Jesus Christ cannot understand and therefore advocate for me and that that suffering was there but it was also wonderful to know that at the tomb Lazarus's tomb when Jesus wept it also says and most of our translations don't have it it says that he was enraged mm -hmm. 
he was enraged at death. And I'm telling you, I was a little, I was feeling a little guilty over how angry I was over Mm. Samuel's dying, that it was this hard. And it was such a gift to be able to listen to another message that actually went into that, that they're very uncomfortable with Jesus being enraged at death. He knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, but he was still enraged at death. So he even understands my anger over that. Suffering and not just the grief, and it will be redeemed. After you were starting to feel better from your long period of trying to find answers for your health uh, problems, and you began to know and recognize that God was calling you to opening up your home to to dying children. What did your husband think about this? I mean, obviously now you're all on board together, but was he there when you were there? Did he get to the same point as quickly as you did? I wanted to be able to take in a child with a terminal condition, a lethal anomaly, long before my husband was on board with that. And at least three years before we actually did it, I came home with, oh my goodness, wouldn't this be wonderful? And my husband said, (laughs) no. (laughs) No, it would not. He said, you know what? You're dealing with this day in and day out at your job and you don't leave the grief there. You carry that with you. And I didn't think we need to be doing this in our home 24-7. No. And over the process of that next three years, I didn't keep hammering my husband with that. He just knew that that was something that I had wanted to be able to take a baby or a child in, that they would know what it meant to be loved before they died Mm. and asked that God, when he was ready, would provide the opportunity to do that if it was something that he wanted us to do. The day that I got the call that said, we have a baby who is terminally ill and not might live until she's two years old, but we don't even know that she'll live out the day. Mm. Would you be willing to take her? I said, yes. And then my husband came home that night and I said, all right, we've got an opportunity to bring home a baby who is two weeks old and, and give her whatever life, you know, make a life for her before she passes away and we don't know how long she's going to live. And he said, yes. And that was, I actually sort of thought everything was over and that it was mm-hmm. just going to be a matter of folding towels and washing dishes, which is still good work. I had no idea that this calling was coming and out of the blue, except for the fact that God had fearfully and wonderfully made that baby nine months before, knowing full well that he was going to bring us into the picture. And it was a couple of months after my hope had been restored um, through Sanavive and the integrative functional medicine approach that I now use, that he said, It's time. You're home because of surgeries that I've had. I'm not able to go back to work, but I can be at home. And he said, I'm going to bring the babies here. You didn't have to go to work in order to find them. And we stepped into that. And I can see now where there was so much preparation that went into it. It wasn't like overnight, oh, yes, we're going to do this. But God was preparing us for years to be in a position to do this. And your husband was on board. What what changed his mind, do you think? I think that he fi- he came to the conclusion that a baby dying was not worst case scenario. 
but that she would be in that hospital tucked in a bassinet off to the side dying by herself was worst case scenario. And timing too, because mm-hmm. you said it took some time for you to get to the place where you were able to do it and for the Lord to bring all those, like the perfect storm, right. all the yes. pieces together in a miraculous way. Tell us about that little girl. How long did you have her? She lived until she was 50 days old. Mm. Uh, so we had her five weeks, a little over five weeks. Mm. And the doctor had told me when I left, he said, I don't even know whether or not she's going to make it home. So mm. um, we we had hospice for her and I requested that she have some oxygen via a nasal cannula so that she wasn't struggling to breathe in that she was being fed via a tube in her nose. It's called an NG. So she was not able to suck. She was missing most of her brain. She had the brain stem, but the right and left hemisphere on the top, there was nothing in the top. If you put an ophthalmoscope on her fontanelle there and turn the light out, it was like a globe. It was just all fluid. So so it was really pretty miraculous that she was had survived outside of the womb. And the doctor had said, and this is what I find so telling when they think that, you know, an abortion can be done and that, you know, it's not painful for the baby. Mm -hmm. The doctor said, she is a vegetable. She will only respond to painful stimuli. And she Mm -hmm. was missing most of her brain. Um, But the nerve network was was still there. And Mm -hmm. she definitely was much more responsive to us than he had given her credit for. And so, you know, whether she had been responsive or not, because she was made in the image of God and therefore had value, it didn't matter whether she responded to us. We were still going to care for her to the best of our capability and leave the timing of her death in God's hands. And so our family was ready to go. I had five children still at home at that point in time three of them were were out and those five that were home just said okay you know we'll what are we going to do we'll just kind of hold her right and i said that's probably the biggest thing that we can do for her and she was held almost constantly mm. well you you mentioned you have five children that were home at that time but you actually have eight birth children yes. correct yeah yes. so you have a big family and so t- talk a little bit about how the children uh, responded. You talk about how they they mostly held her. Did any of them struggle with you uh, bringing such a crisis situation into your home, especially after you were coming out of some uh, a long period of health crisis? Yes. Well, absolutely. There were certainly some mixed feelings, and we had extended family that just they were so angry. I just did not understand why we would purposely take in a baby who was going to die. Why would we do that to our children? So I'll tell you that my children that were at home kind of are a little confused by that because they didn't feel like we were doing anything to them, especially in a negative sense. We provided comfort and you know, not that she would have cared, but have baby, have oxygen tank, will travel. You know, we we live very close to Lake Michigan. We went down to the beach and we took her to the bookmobile and we took her on errands to the bank and we just 
you know, continued to do life with this child. She met an awful lot of people who came to hold her. There wasn't protectiveness, I don't think, with her because we didn't know how long she was going to have her in saying, no, we're going to wait a month before we go out and do anything because we don't want you to catch any, you know, have any um, exposure to people or germs. We we weren't that protective. It was, we're going to pack a whole lot of living mm. in before you go. But I, I certainly had some reticence, like with um, my older kids, my my third child, especially, he was at school at that point in time. And he just thought, what are you doing? I mean, haven't we been through enough already? But I'll tell you, he came home from school and not for two weeks. It was kind of like, well, maybe this will all be done before I come home. And then she actually was thriving in spite of her condition and still living. And so he came home with a bunch of buddies from, uh, from the college where he was attending. And he said, I walked in and I had expected to kind of see everybody sitting around kind of crying. And that he said, I had not seen our family that lively and me so engaged and full of purpose. And I, I tell you that there is, there is something there's an intangible quality about doing something like this. And it doesn't make sense to most people. You would think that that would be the most depressing time ever. But my responsibility was not to keep her from dying. It was to care for her until that happened. And what a gift mm-hmm. to be able to do that. And, and the extra energy and light that he saw when he walked in, he said, we had flipped from being in black and white and just surviving during your illness to living in full color. Wow. I, it was just amazing. You would say then that this calling has really impacted your children in a positive way. Oh, definitely. In the in the midst of it, it looks pretty difficult. I mean, you know, nobody sails through a child dying without the grief and mm. the pain that that causes. But we have a purposefulness that there is hope in the midst of this, and that God will. We've just seen Him carry us through. So all of those emotions are there. But it's not characterized by despair and hopelessness, but rather by purposefulness and hope, all in capital letters. Corey, throughout your book, when you talk about your children, the children that you have made a home for, I love the way your son described you, your family, that you're in living color now. Mm -hmm. You've gone from black and white to living color because of that intangible thing that people who haven't done it probably don't get uh, about the purpose that even your youngest children could experience. But talk to us a little bit about the children that you did bring into your home and that you continue to have in your home. For instance, failure to thrive, they're not going to respond to to you. Have you seen any changes in your children as you have brought them home from the hospital or, or um, you know, that where you've, you've been told don't expect anything, have you seen any changes in them as far as responding to you and your family? Yes. Again, I, I, I can't scientifically explain it, but I do know that there is such a thing as failure to thrive, that a child, a baby can be receiving medications and diaper changes and nutrition. And they can be failure to thrive. And then when they're held and when someone is 
there's a consistency in the caregiver that that they're loved that they can absolutely defy medical expectation and thrive in spite of everything that's wrong with them and charlie was one of the <laughs> ugliest babies <laughs> that i had ever seen red and blotchy and eyes rolled back and crying and he just was such a mess when i first saw him and i so it wasn't an immediate oh i'm so in love with this kiddo it was and i describe it in the book i that we walked in and we were fact finding mm. not fault finding we didn't walk in and expect that there was going to be this spark of of joy is the term that's going around right now that there wasn't he needed a mom and my nursing capability was just icing on top of the cake but that again is something where God says that we should love him with all our heart, mind, and soul, and that we should love our neighbor as ourselves. And we cannot scientifically account for the difference that loving someone and caring for them because you love them makes. But you know when someone is just doing something for you out of duty and when they're doing it because they genuinely care for you. So he responded to that. Yes, yes, yeah. he's absolutely gorgeous. Is he still with you? Is he Charlie? is. He yeah. is. How long has he been with you? Um, more than four years now. Each one of these children has parents. Um, what? How do you feel about the parents who have really given up on their children? There was a time when I had been out at Santa Viva and the you you meet with a dentist and a chiropractor and a doctor and a psychologist and because they put the whole body together. And the psychologist had said, what, what do you think of Charlie's mom? And I said, I'm angry with her because of the choices that she made that have permanently damaged this child, that he will never walk, he'll never talk, he can't get out of bed on his own. And she was very flippant about that and took no responsibility for him. Mm. And my psychologist said, I want you to read this book. It's called Forgive for Good. And he said, because if you harbor negative feelings towards her, she's unimpacted because she's just not a part of his life. She gave birth and never looked back. But for you, it would be better for me, honestly, to have a perspective of, of gratitude rather than harboring resentment. And she made some really terrible choices that, that negatively affected Charlie's whole life. But she also carried him and gave him life, allowed him to continue to live. And we are blessed by the fact that we have him and it's better for me to be praying for my fostered and adopted children's parents rather than wishing that they would have, could have, should have made other choices because that's energy that is going nowhere and fueling that fire inside of me only negatively impacts myself as well as my family and possibly even the children. So it's better to have an attitude of forgiveness for their ignorance or even for their deliberately making choices that hurt their children. 
I am not responsible for their actions, but I am responsible for the feelings that I have towards them. And it's better for me to be forgiving and pray for them that God will bless them, God bless them, God bless them, rather than wishing any ill. I really appreciate your explanation, Corey, because I've heard you say, you know, no judgment, no judgment on on the parents. And to hear you explain how you have processed and gotten to that point, I imagine that that process applies to a lot of places in life, whether we are doing what you're doing or wherever God has called us to be able to release and to forgive and to let go. And as you say, put the energy into the task before us, into what God has called us to. So I think that's one way that uh, caring for these precious children has changed you. Are there other ways that you would look back and say, or even today say, I'm different because of what God has called me to. I'm different in this way. The verse that says, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. That was kind of out there in theory. And I was told as a, as a young person in high school, you know, God is going to do some amazing, amazing things with you. Mm-hmm. You know, we can see you in full-time Christian service and, you know, missionary service. And I wanted to go to India and I just had, I was just ready to be a martyr for God. And then, you know, it's just suffering is very romantic until you have to actually do it. And then it's like, but this isn't fair because <laughs> there's still a part of you that is like, but I love you, God, you know, so I don't understand why everything is just not going swimmingly. I know that as Jesus had told Peter, you're going to deny me three times and Satan has asked to sift you, but I have prayed for you. And what I want him to say is Satan has asked to sift you, Peter, but I have decided that's not happening. So Mm. don't worry about it. (laughs) Instead, Peter had to be sifted of self that apart from God, apart from Christ, he would be the most, you know, he would do everything that he thought he never would do. And so I look at the suffering that I have endured. As Jesus has said, Corey, Satan has asked to sift you, but I have prayed for you. And when you're restored, then you will tell people, you know, what, what, I've, what I've done and I'll be a witness and a light that it's not a matter of my standing here telling you I'm so gifted. I mean, you know, I, I can speak eloquently and I can't sing or squat, but you know that I'm, I'm good looking and I'm talented. And so therefore God's got a real, he's got a package in me that why wouldn't he use me? Instead, I can sit here and say, God uses the weak and foolish and that he delights to use those that aren't standing there saying, yeah, pick me, but rather he picks me in spite of all of my flaws. Mm -hmm. He says, now I can actually use you because you're not so full of yourself. And not to say that it was wrong, but when I had gone to Bible college and then my husband and I had said, India or Africa, anywhere but Wisconsin, please. And here we are in Wisconsin. And this is not exactly where we had anticipated being. And I had one of my teachers who told me, God must have just really put you on the shelf. I mean, it's it's very disappointing that, you know, you never made it to the mission field. Mm. But see, that's the misnomer that the mission field is in India. The mission field is wherever it is that you happen to be, that you're supposed to be light and salt in your world. And I would tell you that I always wanted to do the shiny thing and the, 
you know, where people are going, oh, well, that's just amazing. And really, honestly, with taking care of these kids, it's kind of like I change a lot of poopy diapers. Mm. And there's not much glorious in it at all. But I'm no longer in the place where I'm saying I need to go and I need it to be shiny in order to do it. No, it's the day in and day out. Just do the next thing. Do the mom thing. Be content and fold that laundry to the glory of God. Mm. Make that supper to the glory of God. Suction that baby. Change his diaper. Make sure his feeding is, you know, is running to the glory of God. And that he's in that nitty gritty, that it isn't just the shiny once a year kind of, uh, mm. you know, dress up for the ball sort of thing. But whatever I do, do all to the glory of God and the emptying of self and being willing to stay home mm -hmm. instead of wanting to always be the one who goes has been where God has said, I will take your willingness to stay home with one baby. And then he has taken that places for a worldwide impact that I never had as my raising my hand and saying, oh, I'll go to India because that'll surely make you happy. No, he's, he's after my heart. And am I willing to go where he puts me or willing to stay if that's what he's asked me to do? And so I can't say that I don't ever go. There are times when I go and speak and I'm traveling across the country in order to be able to do that. But for the most part, it's day in and day out, just kind of doing the mom thing here at home. And I really believe that God is pleased with me. Well, you're having an impact on thousands of people, uh, not just through your speaking, but through your book. And as we wrap up, I'd, I'd like to ask you, uh, why did you write this book? I've written some books and it can be torture <laughs> to write books. Yes. And you probably experienced, I mean, you went back into some really dark times in your life yeah, and you put it all life. out there. Your life is so crazy busy. Why would you take the time? to put your story into a book for the whole world to read? Because I had some people who called me up and said, I think that people need the backstory, that they shouldn't just be looking at what appears to be shiny with, oh, you take care of kids that are terminally ill, you know, you're such an angel, mm. but rather that they should know that God is amazing mm. and that he's able to use the weak and the foolish. And that would be me. And he's able to redeem the unredeemable, what appears to be unredeemable, and that he is close. Oh, he is close to the brokenhearted, and he cannot ignore their cries. And I am a living example of the faithfulness of God. And so took the time, and, and I will tell you that most of that book was written sitting in a hospital room being interrupted constantly because you don't go to the hospital in order to have rest and peace and quiet and alarms going off and doctors coming in and the nurses coming in and you know trying to get thoughts down on paper and sitting at the Ronald McDonald house and I'm exhausted but life was very busy and we had triplets at one point when I was trying to, you know, get the beginning of the book started. And I naively went into it and told my co-writer, well, why don't you come out for the weekend and we'll get this done? And <laughs> she wisely said, well, I'm not free, you know, in the next month or so. So how about if you send me the first couple of chapters and then we'll go from there. It took a year to write that book. So it was just stupidity on my part, <laughs> very ignorant to think that we were going to knock that out in a weekend. And I, what a labor of love on God's part to have me lay that down and say, okay, 
there is some forgiveness that you need to extend here so that it wasn't where you walked away going, oh, wow, you know, she's still carrying such bitterness or that she should be angry or that there is. So he was redeeming things even as I was writing them. And I, my, I wrote at least 12 chapters that never got, got printed. And my co-writer, bless her heart, Marianne, just, okay, I'm thinking if you put this on paper, then you're not going to like it when it comes back. And they say, but this is my perspective on it, you know, and that you didn't see. One of the key things was I didn't know up until the time I was 52 years old why we never went and visited my sister after we dropped, after she was taken to the institution. Mm-hmm. That was just an area where I never had my parents' perspective because I never asked them. I just had carried a a bitterness that I didn't understand why we dropped her off and then we didn't go back. And then because of the process of writing this book and asking my mom and dad for whatever memories they had of Amy, my mom said one of her greatest regrets was that she listened when the doctor said, leave her here. And don't come visit because she needs to bond with her new caregivers. And it will just be confusing if you come. And that's why it's called medical practice. And because that was not a good thing for Amy. But one way that I look at that, see, Amy is not still suffering and she doesn't remember the struggle here. So I have to be careful that I'm not taking on grief that she's no longer experiencing. But I do also firmly believe that when I'm not able to be there, uh, in spite of my being able to be there for these children, that when Jesus told the disciples, don't keep them from me, for I tell you that they all have their own angel in heaven who always clothes the face of the Father, that Amy was not alone, even though she didn't have someone coming to respond to her crying. And that is where God has stepped in and said, I didn't leave her. You may have had to leave, leave her because that was the you know, best practice medical advice then was the best place for them was in an institution rather than with their family, that he didn't, he never left her, that she was not alone. So there have been some really hard things that God has just stepped back in and just said, I'm not all done with that. And I wasn't done then. And so being able to sift through it, asking God, it may be unfulfilled, it may be unrestored, but anything that's shattered, that's laid before the Lord, just watch and see, it will not be unredeemed. And God has just amazingly stepped in and said, no, I was there. How about this? And how about that? And and then it's just not even all, all done yet. Um, Amy's good, and I'll see her again. My name is Sharon Batters, and you have been listening to my conversation with Corey Salkard, author of I Will Love You Forever. I would love to hear how Corey's story has impacted you. You can go to markinc.org and leave us a message. And you'll also find more stories like Corey's that offer help and hope to hurting people. This Help and Hope podcast was produced by Mark Inc. Ministries. And we are so thankful that you have been listening.